Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We'll tell you why the local YMCA has canceled some summer camps. A warning about potential explosives near Parliament Hill turned out to be a false alarm. Are the Hamilton Bulldogs Memorial Cup bound? The Ticats stubbed their toe in week number one. The taxman is going after your Serb. And the WHO wants a deeper probe into the origins of COVID-19. The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. One of the big issues that we are facing now as we are on, we hope, the downside of the COVID-19 pandemic, or at least the downslope, is the labor shortage. It's impacting a number of businesses, industry, sectors uh, all over the place. Travel and tourism hit hard. Many other businesses complaining that there just aren't enough people out there to fill positions. YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Branford also feeling the pinch. It's been forced to cancel and or shorten some of its kids camps this summer due to a severe staffing shortage. Kyla Kumar is the vice president of marketing and communications, information technology and government relations at YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Branford and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kyla, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm uh, fine, thanks. I'm good. What's happening in this situation? Tell us about it. Sure. So this was a really tough decision uh, that we've had to make at the Y. But as you said in your intro, we are one of the sectors that are experiencing some of the workforce uh, challenges that so many others are as well. And we're seeing that this summer with our seasonal day camps. And um, so typically we would hire in the summer at uh, our day camps about 145 staff. We're sitting at 104 uh, right now. And so we've had to make this decision to reduce capacity at two of them and cancel one at Allen A. Greenleaf. Um, What's interesting is that we actually had staffing in place and uh, we've seen some two sort of trends. One of them is uh, that many offers that we put out, uh, about 25, in fact, individuals elected to decline them. Uh, for potentially other alternative opportunities. And then uh, we had about 19 people who accepted offers and um, ultimately uh, resigned, again, um, due to other factors, maybe other opportunities. So so that's one variable we're seeing, and um, it, it's definitely impacted our ability uh, to ramp up where we thought we'd be. And so that's why we've taken steps to um, you know, make a difficult call give families adequate time to find alternate opportunities this summer for their children. How many of those difficult calls has the YMCA been forced to make and how many kids are impacted? Sure. So it's about 31% of the capacity that we've planned or about 593 children that um, had had been registered for summer camp and our day camp programs um, that unfortunately uh, we won't be able to support this summer. Kyla Kumar is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kyla is the VP of Marketing and Communications, IT, and Government Relations at the YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Brantford. How did the Y choose which children could not attend the camps? Yeah, that, that was tough. So what we did was um, we the, the camps that were impacted were those that were the ones having the most acute workforce challenges. In those programs, we looked at um, who had registered uh, last So those families that were last to register before those camps became full were the families that were ultimately impacted by by these decisions. This is obviously, as you know, putting some pressure on parents as well, many of whom rely on these camps in the summer for things like daycare or just, you know, exposing their kids to new things. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, I, it really, we, first of all, I just want to say we're really, really regretful that we've had to, to make this decision, but safety and quality of programming is, is the most important thing that we do at the YMCA. And um, when it became clear that we were not able to uh, get staffing in place in time for summer, because of course, training is a big piece of what we do, uh, we, we decided to, to make this call. Um, what we have said to families that were impacted is that we're still recruiting. And if we're able to, to um, see more people join the YMCA as employees, we've put them on a wait list if, if they so elect to choose to do so. And they will be the first that we call to bring back to programs if we're able to ramp up service. How is that recruitment process going? And I would imagine, you know, you're dipping into previous campers to say, hey, do you want to take part in a camp and volunteer and help out? And I would I would imagine that the, the pandemic, when camps were all canceled, you're not able to dive into that pool of uh, potential volunteers. Yes, that's, a, that's actually one of the other main variables that is impacted. The pandemic's really disrupted how we build our employment pool uh, in camps. So in 2020, because of where we all were in the lockdown, um, there was no camps that we were, anyone was able to run. Um, and then in 2021, we operated with a very limited capacity. And as you've said, Rick, what happens in camp is two things. Um, one, campers, uh, camp staff come from camps very frequently. And so um, that pool is shortened. Um, we have our leadership and training program, for example, and that's really about building the foundational skills to come work in camps if you choose to do so. That hasn't run in uh, two years. Um, and then the other thing is that we start in December. We call back um, previous uh, seasonal camp staff, often they're uh, post-secondary students that are on break and we are, they're planning for break and we ask them to come back and join us. Uh, again, that pool is shortened as time has passed. So we really have that disruption happening as well <clears throat> that's impacted the pool. But we start hiring as early as December for our, for our camps. If someone listening right now wants to join and, and help out at a camp, what qualities or experience is the YMCA looking for and how can people apply? So um, thank you for asking that. First of all, yes, we're recruiting. And if you visit our website, ymcahbb.ca, you can um, see all of the postings and, and all of the qualifications and skills. Uh, obviously, the first thing is that you must enjoy working with children. Um, it's an extremely rewarding career. It also comes with a lot of responsibility. But camps come, people from working camps come from all backgrounds, arts and sciences, music, uh, sports. And so if you have an affinity or background in those areas, you know, those are a great starting point. Um, and also individuals looking to build their leadership skills um, over time. Uh, as I said, it comes with a lot of responsibility. People who have uh, first aid, CPR, all of those technical skills, obviously that's critically important. We do work with people to obtain their, those trainings if you don't have them. So what, I, what I'd really recommend to listeners or people who may know somebody that, that say, I'd be interested in that, um, visit our website and you can see really comprehensively those postings. And that website again, ymcahbb.ca. Kyle, appreciate the time. Good luck in recruiting the next batch of people that are going to help uh, mold our kids into better human beings in the years to come. Thanks for having me this morning, Rick. Kyla Kumar is the Vice President, Marketing and Communications, Information Technology and Government Relations at the YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Branford. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Heavily armed police descended on Parliament Hill and some surrounding streets on Saturday afternoon looking for what police then believed was a credible threat concerning explosives potentially in vehicles on or around Parliament Hill based on a supposedly solid tip. 
But now police in the Capitol are questioning the credibility of the warning that subsequently turned up nothing. That is Global's Mercedes Stevenson. A major national security investigation is underway in Ottawa after a warning from the CBSA into potential explosives in vehicles parked near Parliament Hill. Phil Gursky is our guest. He's the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. Phil, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Rick. How are you this fine Monday morning? I'm good. What the heck happened here? (laughs) What a great question. It certainly took me by surprise. But, you know, you live in Ottawa, the Ottawa area, Rick. You're kind of used to these things. We're the target for all kinds of things. Of course, you remember back in 2014 when Michael Zahapi Bo killed Nathan Cirillo at the National War Memorial, then he attacked Parliament Hill before he was killed. So the fact that there's a target on Parliament Hill uh, in general doesn't surprise me at all, actually. If information is coming from the CBSA, which, you know, we immediately think about the border, how would any possible threat reach Ottawa before it's dealt with? You know, you raise a really good question. When, when, when I read the initial story that Mercedes had put out in Global on, on yesterday, that's what first struck me. So normally in these circumstances, Rick, you would think that either my former organization, CSIS or the RCMP, would be the ones that would find the information, gather the intelligence and, and lead the investigation. But the fact that CBSA had done so suggests to me, and I, I can't say for sure, this is speculation on my part, Rick. I, I mean, I worked with CBSA, they do have an intelligence branch, that maybe this threat emanated from out side of Canada and involves someone coming across the border. And I mean, who do we have a border with? Well, of course, United States. So again, I don't know about this, but it it seemed odd to me that the CBSA was the primary agency that had the initial intelligence that led to this investigation on Parliament Hill. I'll join the speculation as well, because the the first thing I thought of was, you know, someone called the CBSA to report this alleged heinous activity and authorities acted as a precaution. Does that make sense? I mean, how else does it happen? Yeah, it does. And certainly when you get information of this nature, you don't want to ignore it completely. You know, as it turns out, maybe it was a hoax, maybe it was a bad tip, but you can't afford to take that risk, that risk, Rick. I mean, if you were to, you know, reject it out of hand initially and something bad were to happen, people would say, well, why didn't you act on the tip in the first place? So it's a fine line between gathering information, which we call intelligence, assessing it for how real it is, assessing how good the source is, corroborating it from multiple sources as you can. And at the end of the day, doing the job that Canadians expect you to do day in, day out. Phil Gursky is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former analyst at CSIS. And you mentioned that you have had some relations with CBSA. When, When the CBSA obtains information about a potential threat, how does that get communicated? Who's contacted? Well, you know, there is obviously within Canada, we have a very robust system of sharing information uh, amongst the various agencies. So again, when we think intelligence, we think, you know, CSIS, we think CSE, um, the signals intelligence where I worked before I went to CSIS, we think the RCMP. The other thing you have to bear in mind too, though, Rick, is the difference between intelligence and evidence. So organizations such as CSIS collect collect intelligence, that's not admissible in in Canadian court. Neither does CSIS want its sources to be put on the stand. So there's a kind of a fine dance that gets played between sharing the information in a way that it can be used without compromising sources. So CBSA, I'm not sure what their policies are or their standards, whether their um, information is evidentiary in nature, but there definitely are ways for them to share it, especially with the RCMP of something serious like national security or public safety is concerned. Because this was Ottawa... Was this a potential overreaction given what happened with the occupation of the Capitol in February? 
what a great possibility. I don't disagree with you there, Rick. Certainly, I think we're seeing now, and I at the time I said that the January slash February Freedom Convoy was a vast overreaction by the by the government of Canada. This was not a serious national security threat from the way that I saw it. But again, it's it's Ottawa. And you know, we had an attack in 2014. That's only what eight years ago. People are a little bit nervous. The atmosphere is not great right now. You you've seen the F dot 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 Trudeau signs, I'm sure, around Hamilton as well. There's a lot of nervousness in Ottawa. So anytime you get the possibility of, of a bomb or explosive, you take it seriously because you don't want bad things to happen at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm not, for one, suggesting that, you know, if this happened in Hamilton or Toronto or, uh, you know, Sudbury, that it wouldn't be taken seriously. I just think that given what happened in the Capitol, that there's a heightened awareness for sure on potential activity. So the question now is, what's going to be the fallout in all this? I don't think there'll be any. Um, there was some obviously some you know inconvenience to those who were downtown in Ottawa on Saturday and Sunday. Maybe some streets closed. People in Parliament were told to you know be to lock themselves in, kind of thing. But nothing really happened. I mean, as, aside from maybe you know not getting an extra beaver tail in the byword market, I'm not sure if people can complain that much. But I don't. I can't say there being a follow unless it turns out that the information was ex- extremely ingre- ex- extremely egregious in nature, and you know it never should have been trusted from the get go. But then again, when you work in intelligence or law enforcement, you can't afford to make that call at the get go. So I, I don't think there'll be any follow up for the government at hand. Hopefully, we get an explanation in the next couple of days as to what the information may have indicated and why it was dismissed as being a hoax. Um, you know, if that's the case, maybe you and I have to have another conversation, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> that might be depending on what was said and done and acted upon. It'll be interesting to uh, to see what uh, what that intelligence or that evidence or that information was. Phil, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. My pleasure, Rick. You have a good day. You too. That's Phil Gursky. He's the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former analyst with CSIS. A very interesting story. And I think I think because it was Ottawa, there was, as I said, a, a heightened awareness on uh, listen, we have this information, we better act upon it. And to stop a couple of vehicles on two different streets near Parliament Hill and check them for potential explosives, um, arrest a couple of individuals and then release them later on, was it an overreach? I guess we will find out once this investigation wraps up and Phil surmises that it could be a few days. My guess is it'll probably be a few more days than that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What a game last night. What a game tonight is probably what we're going to be saying. Bulldogs beating the Spitfires 3-2 yesterday afternoon and now have a 3-2 lead in the OHL Championship. Here to break it all down is Reed Duffy, the play-by-play announcer for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, how are you? Well, Rick, it's uh, it's it's a roller coaster ride right now. I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. This is the the first time that the Bulldogs have led in this series. This has been a tough series for Hamilton. So, was last night's win, knowing that Game Six is tonight in Windsor, maybe a bit of a sigh of relief? Yeah, absolutely. This one was huge. Uh, when when you're in that situation where you know you're going back to back, and by the time you get to Windsor. One of those two teams was going to have an opportunity to win the Robertson Cup. You really didn't want Windsor to have that opportunity in front of a big house down there. So getting the win in Game 5 was key for this Bulldogs team, not just to have two shots at it, not just to have home ice advantage continue for them if there were to be a Game 7 needed, 
but to push Windsor's back to the wall. The Bulldogs have been excellent in these situations in the playoffs when they've got a team on the ropes. So now they've got an opportunity one more time to finish it out. Wyatt Johnston opened the scoring last night with one of the strangest goals that a hockey fan will ever see. Shoots the puck, hits off the back glass, bounces off the top of the net, off goaltender Marco Constantini and into the net. That's one of a number of fortunate bounces that Windsor has had in this series. They seem to have some kind of luck on their side. Yeah, there is a bit of puck luck going their way, and it was one of those moments where when you see that one go in, it's almost, a, oh, don't let it happen this way. That was, you know, for a guy like Wyatt Johnston as well, he's so good that he does need those kind of breaks to put points on the board. So it, it was a little bit uh, frightening when you see those kind of bounces go against you. But then between the end of the second period and the third, Mason McTavish just took over the hockey game and showed, I, I like I've said from the time that, he arrived back when he was with the Peterborough Peets when Anaheim sent him back. Why he is the best player in the OHL. Yeah, he's one of the guys I wanted to talk about with you. I mean, what more can you say about Mason McTavish? Two goals yesterday, including a howitzer of a shot on uh, the power play. That was just, I mean, no goalie, perhaps even in the NHL, is going to stop that. I mean, this guy just took over the game last night. I said exactly the same thing after he scored that one, Rick. I don't think there's many goalies in the world that are stopping that shot. He had time off the top of the left circle and ripped it. And that was the the kind of goal that can really charge a team, and it did. And then he doubles that up at the beginning of the third period on a great feed from Patrick Thomas. It's no wonder why Mason McTavish likes to play with Patrick Thomas. He finds him in all sorts of opportunities and spaces. So that connection worked out perfectly. But it wasn't just that for Mason McTavish. He was brilliant again in the draws. He was almost 70%. He won a couple of key face-offs in that last minute. He played physical. He was blocking shots. If anybody wondered if there was desire for Mason McTavish, knowing that he's just a step away from the National Hockey League, well, they certainly found out yesterday he is dialed in. He wants to win a Robertson Cup. And if he is this motivated, that's a scary thought for anybody that's got to go up against him because that – is a ridiculous talent. A couple more minutes with Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer with the Hamilton Bulldogs. As the Dogs beat the Spits 3-2 yesterday, they have a 3-2 lead in the OHL Championship and can wrap it up tonight in Windsor. The Spits have gotten some unbelievable goaltending from Matthias Anuska. Without him, I think the series is probably already over. Yeah, it probably does look a little bit different. And then you look at even Xavier Medina back in Game 1 in the overtime frame. The Windsor Spitfires have gotten some really good goaltending in the series. And at the same time, Rick, you have to wonder, almost like what we saw with with Joe Ranger in the Mississauga series, is there a moment where the floodgates break for the Bulldogs? They've had all kinds of chances. They've outshot Windsor in four of the five games. Is there a moment where there's a big breakout for the offense? Because Anushka has been incredible, but we've seen him at times lose his net a little bit. And we've seen it in a couple of key moments as well. The Gavin White overtime winner, he did look like he located the puck. Uh, Last night, he kind of came out, was at the top of his crease and sort of way out of the action a couple of times. The controversial Gavin White, uh, Ryan Humphrey play in game four. I think that the Bulldogs can catch him wandering a little bit, but he is so athletic, he can get back into the play and scramble across the front of that net. So... 
He's been really good, but you got to wonder if there's something still left in that offensive tank for the dogs. Yeah, you got to got to tip your cap to the other guy on the other side of the net as well. Constantini has been amazing. Had some huge third period saves last night as the Bulldogs beat the Spitz three two. They're up three two in the OHL Championship and can close it out tonight in Windsor. Reed, appreciate the time. Good luck with the call tonight, and hopefully we'll see the dogs go one step further. And that's all the way to the Memorial Cup in a couple weeks' time. Rick, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and hopefully we see somebody raising that Robertson Cup tonight. Ray Duffy, play-by-play announcer with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Game six tonight in Windsor. Dogs, Spitz, and a victory tonight for Hamilton will not only give them the uh, J. Ross Cup for the Ontario Championship, but also send them to the Memorial Cup in St. John. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ticats fans may have been a little stressed out after Saturday. It's 100% my fault. Um, I, I got to be so much better. Even with everything that happened tonight, um, the sacks, you know, all that stuff, whatever, whatever, we found ourselves in a position in the fourth quarter where we could have won, won a ball game, right? And and we didn't. We didn't. That's, they beat us. That's that's fair and square. That is Tiger Cats quarterback Dane Evans following Hamilton's 30-13 to loss in Saskatchewan on Saturday. Here to break it all down is Bubba O'Neill, CHCH sports anchor and host of Ticats pregame, halftime, postgame on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML. Bubba, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Not a good start for the Tiger Cats. What stuck out to you on Saturday night? <laughs> You know, the inefficiency on second down is what really surprised me because I thought, you know what, this is kind of a, I'm not going to say a veteran group that they have, but, and I know they didn't play a lot in the preseason together, but, you know, Dane, you know, the quarterback, Dane Evans has worked, you know, with a lot of those wide receivers before, and I thought we were going to see, you know, a better execution of that short passing game. So I thought they were able to string together some drives and, you know, I think really the only one real cohesive drive that they had, you know, resulted in a touchdown, and that was because of a long pass. But uh, the, in, the inconsistencies on offense was a big surprise to me. I thought the defense really held strong. They were on the field, uh, I thought, too long, again, for these long extended drives, and I thought that was a major problem. Hamilton committed five turnovers, four by Dane Evans. They allowed eight sacks. They were five for 23 on second down and in saying all that the Ticats were down by only two points with seven minutes to go in the game um it, it was there for the taking there but that's your shining light right and I think you know I think it's very important for us the, the people that watch the team on a regular basis uh, people like us in the media to really not go too crazy about this loss because there, you're right. There was an opportunity at getting this team ahead, at least. If not, if not a victory, at least getting them ahead on the scoreboard. And as poorly as they played, their defense was outstanding. I, I, you know, we were really concerned about their kicking game this year in terms of special teams. And I thought their new punter did exceptionally well. And Don Miguel had drilled one from 52 yards away. So some things to certainly clean up on offense. I'm sure today when this team sits down and watch that film, it's going to be an ugly session with lots of finger pointing. Um, and you're right, that offensive line now down a, a, a left tackle because of injury, and it looks like it's going to be a long time. They've got some work to do. One stat that stuck out to me, and there was a lot of them out there, was Don Jackson. Five carries, one yard. Um, he's got to do better. The O-line's got to do better going forward. I don't even think it was done. I just thought the offensive line just, I mean, again, 
it was almost like, you know, we hear it a lot of times, you know, use the pass to set up the run or the run to set up the pass. It was just ineffective. With that said, you're facing one of, if not the, if not number one, the number two defensive lines in all of, in the Canadian Football League. So, I mean, that's a very, very stout front four that they run. They run a lot of man-to-man coverage, which means, you know, the de- defensive backs are watching the wide receivers on a one-to-one basis. And they were more than willing to commit many men inside the box to stop the run. So I- I'm not, I'm not going to really worry about that, but I'm more concerned about the, the, the offensive line more so than the running back. I think Don Jackson's a very talented guy. Uh, but like any running back, I don't care who you are, that old line's got to open up some holes for you. Yeah, I agree. Bubba O'Neill is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, CHCH Sports Anchor, host of Ticats pregame, halftime, postgame on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML. One last question for you. Saturday's home opener against the Stampeders, what are you expecting to see? <laughs> Great question, Rick. Aren't we all very anxious for this? It really is, you know, not to skirt your question, but... Remind yourself, I mean, first of all, I think the West Division have all the wins and the East Division have no wins. Toronto had the bye week. Yeah. So uh, are we in a situation where the West is the best again? Because the Tiger Cats face four West Division opponents right off the start of their schedule. And Calgary Stampeders have, you know, led by Levi Mitchell for all these years. They, they certainly have a, an incredible running game and Kadeem Carey, uh, a real stout offensive line. That's going to be a tough test. And Calgary has always been a tough team, whether they played the McMahon Stadium or at Tim Hortons or even Iverwind going that far back. So it's going to be a real test. It's going to be a fun week. I will say that with the Hall of Fame induction and all that kind of stuff. But um, you don't want to be an 0-2 football team, and you got to get those wins at home. So this is going to be a real test for the Tiger Cats because they're not facing an easy test here. I agree. Bubba, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck this weekend. Hey, thank you so much. Hey, I'm not on the field. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I'll take the good luck back, so, Greg. You got it. Thanks, Bubba. Bubba O'Neill, right. CHCH Sports Anchor, host of Ticats pregame, halftime, postgame on the Ticats Audio Network. And, of course, you can hear the games right here as well on 900 CHML. Our pregame show on Saturday begins at 5.30, kickoff at 6.30 and a half hour after the final whistle. It's the fifth quarter with myself right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. From 900 CHML. You're probably going to be interested in this, and that is your money. Did you collect the CERB? Well, the CRA, in some cases, wants that money back. And in some cases, is also clawing back EI payments. It's an interesting conundrum. Well, unless you're being impacted by it. Paul Anadiak is a Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at Media Debt Solutions here on 900 CHML. Paul, what's going on this morning? Hey, Rick. It's uh, it's Monday morning. It's a great Monday morning. Looking forward to the week. And uh, yeah, it was a great weekend. How about you? Yeah, fantastic weekend. Uh, maybe not as fantastic if uh, people had, uh, you know, claimed CERB and now are seeing the tax man wanting some or all of that money back. There's one thing that you can't avoid is is, is uh, taxes, and that's, that's part of the old saying. Uh, but yeah, this is a situation that we knew that was going to be coming for a period of time. Uh, people that were not eligible for CERB that did collect it. And, and I have to say one thing, that the people that weren't eligible that did collect it, a lot of times that I'm talking to individuals, it was a mistake. They mistakenly believed that they were going to be qualifying for it and received it. However, now 
you know, it's time to repay. And they have to take a look at what their repayment options are going to be. And there are a couple of different repayment options that uh, an individual can have. Uh, number one, uh, you know, if you've already repaid it, uh, then you can go back and amend your taxes. Now, for those that has been eating into their EI, this is probably one of the best solutions. If you can go back and amend your taxes, it's going to correct it for the upcoming year. Number two, you can wait till next tax season to amend it. Or number three, you can take a look at another option. Uh, for example, you know, we're already talking about Canadians being stressed out over their debt. Now, this is just another added layer to that stress because a lot of people don't have over $2,000 just immediately to pay back to the government. And so you can do this in installments, right? If the, if the CRA says, hey, give us back that two grand or whatever the number is, uh, that can be done in installments, correct? Exactly. And the benefit of installments is uh, on the CERB, there's no penalties and interest for the repayments. So that's great. However, I do have to caution people is that there are penalties and interest if you owe income tax money. That is not being waived at this time. So if CERB impacted your income taxes where now you owe money, you are going to get charged penalties and interest on that income tax amount. So are people having to pay, if they owe on their taxes and they also have to pay back this CERB, can they do one or the other, i.e. can you pay your income tax debt, if you will, as opposed to directing that payment to CERB? Does that make sense? Well, that would make sense uh, in one way that you are going to be saving uh, penalties and interest there. Now, individuals that are receiving letters from CRA, normally their SERBs have been set up separate from their income tax account. So they're able to take a look at that and able to apply the funds where needed as well. Again, as I mentioned, not everyone's got the money right away. Those that were struggling during COVID, a lot of them are still struggling and they're continuing to see those struggles. Paul Anatyuk is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Paul is the Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. There have been some cases where individuals received the CERB, went back to work and received a, you know, a, a first check or another check from their employer, and now we're not supposed to get that CERB. Um, it, it seems like the, the system wasn't 100% um, uh, accurate, I guess, for lack of a better term, in terms of making sure employees weren't double dipping, if you will. Well, the thing about that COVID, remember, a lot of people forget the lockdowns already. So a, a lot of people are in stressful situation. Uh, the government employees were working from home as well. And really, the government, what they wanted to do is to get the money into Canadians as quick as possible without as many hurdles as possible. And that's what happened. Of course, when that's going to happen, there are always going to be those little quirks in the system. And this is what we've encountered here is that, you know, people that uh, weren't eligible were still able to apply and they still receive the money. Anyone who has not completed their taxes from previous years and collected the CERB, this, this could get a little messy for some. This is going to get very messy because if you have not completed your taxes for a couple of years and you did owe money, this is where the penalties and interest are going to be adding up. And with the government, they do not give you a break on your penalties and interest unless you apply uh, really for a fairness hearing, which is time consuming and it's lengthy. And a lot of times it doesn't work out in the end. You mentioned that debt stress. That's basically the focus of our Twitter poll question today is the rising cost of living stressing you out. There's a new poll out as well from Manulife Bank that says uh, nearly one in four homeowners um, say they'll have to sell their home if interest rates go up any further. Uh, are you getting some calls from some worried individuals thinking, uh, listen, if, if my cost of living goes up any more, I'm going to be in big trouble? Well, we've seen a, a couple of 
height uh, increases this year already up to 1%. And the Bank of Canada is warning there are going to be more. So a lot of Canadians are becoming proactive, saying, okay, we've already experienced a shock from this already interest rate increase. What's going to happen next? So we are getting those calls that people want to know what their options are. And of course, it's always a be better to be proactive than reactive. Find out what your options are. If you are struggling with debt, there are always solutions. However, the sooner you tackle your debt problems, the more solutions are available for you. Close to half of uh, those Canadians say debt is impacting their mental health, and we've talked about it from time to time. We'll also talk about it on this Saturday's edition of Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions. But you, you see that mental health impact when you're meeting with people. You see the mental health impact, and, and a lot of times we hear it on the phone. So that initial call, there's a lot of hesitation. A lot of people, when they are stressed, they don't want to reach out to a debt professional such as myself. And we see it. You know, I've seen it even when people come in. This is when people are late for appointments. They're scared to come into the building. The debt stress builds up to so much that they're basically unable to move or unable to work. That's no way to live. No way to live under any kind of stress. Debt stress is an easy solution. You just need to make that first step. That first step is the hardest step. And that's why we're here to help people. Once they make that step, we're going to find out what the various solutions are for them. Great stuff, Paul. As always, we'll chat with you on Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Rick. Have a good week. You too. That's Paul Anatyuk, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Yeah, it's it, it's a tough time with gas prices up, food prices up, interest rates going up, mortgage rates going up. Uh, it's it's expensive to live. And certainly it should come as no surprise that this Manulife Bank of Canada uh, survey shows that nearly one in four, nearly a quarter of people say they will have to sell their home if interest rates go up any further. That is a sad state of affairs. Let's hope we can... Reverse course, somehow, some way. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. China is on the offensive once again. This after the World Health Organization said a deeper investigation is needed to determine if a lab accident, a lab leak, caused the COVID-19 pandemic. That question mark has always been there, hasn't it? Dr. Robert Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Hewish, how are you today? I'm taking time to chat about this. The WHO initially, I find this fascinating, the WHO initially assessed the pandemic's origins and said a lab leak was unlikely. What do you make of this about face? Right. So the, the key to this is where is the information coming from? And if you roll the clock back to March of 2020, the WHO was very trusting of the public health data coming out of China. And we roll it back even to January of 2020 when the information coming out of China was saying it's not airborne, it's not highly contagious. And we sort of went along the lines of that uh, globally. Many countries trusted that advice, but a few didn't. And a couple of the few, uh, New Zealand being one, the United States actually, uh, their own uh, military and security intelligence picked up, said, no, no, this is going to be bad. Their sources in China already picked up in November of 2019 that this was going to be a serious issue. So as a result of what we call all source intelligence, we see now a shift even in the WHO to saying, wait a second, there could be doubt uh, that this, this pandemic broke out on you know, from an area that wasn't uh, a wet market with pangolins in it. And that's the big key is I think the World Health Organization had a lot of trust in China's public health authorities 
Two years later, they don't. And the simple action of saying, could there be other elements that brought about this pandemic? And then to draw such a vicious reaction from China to say this is merely Western propaganda, to me, says they, they've, they've hit a sore spot. They're, they're onto something here. I want to get to China's uh, backlash in a minute, though, but the WHO, some scientists say that there's key pieces of data to explain the origins of the pandemic still missing. What, what would those pieces of data be? So th- th- right now, uh, we see that the, the only theory about could this have happened from animals to humans would have been sort of this wet market theory. Now, with any sort of pandemic or, or viral outbreak, and I'm thinking about SARS and we can talk about HIV, it takes a long, long time to try to prove and definitely associate that there was animal to human transmission in this way. So it could be actually a couple more years before they can definitively say that this is what happened. So in the meantime, uh, as, as any good medical scientist would do, they would keep asking questions. Uh, you, you keep finding out where there's areas of doubt. So one of the things on the other side that, again, U.S. military intelligence reported in uh, November and December of 2019 is that there were key personnel missing from from that lab, that there was a sort of a staffing shortage of very key players. And we you know, don't didn't know where they went. And also some of the earliest contacts uh, of COVID were related to that lab. So I think that's also being factored in. And by just having the Chinese government say, nope, we are unwilling to cooperate on any of this. This is a smear campaign, only furthers that doubt. Dr. Robert Hewish is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. We're talking about the origins of COVID-19. China, as you mentioned, livid that this potential origin story is still out there and that the WHO wants a deeper dive. Really no surprise from China's point of view, um, Although I was surprised to hear that they believe the U.S. is using uh, the coronavirus potentially as a bioweapon. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's quite a piece of fiction that they've come up with this time, <laughs> uh, Rick. Um, the, the thing is with, you know, we, the important thing to, to realize and, and see what China's doing here is really to measure the reaction that's coming out of out of Beijing, like as in the. The, the, the hostility towards any sort of sensible discussion about how this pandemic could have broken out is being thwarted. And I think that reflects exactly what's going on in Beijing today, which we see the city itself going under another intense lockdown. And we see that in Shanghai, uh, only a couple months ago, there were vicious lockdowns that became you know, quite violent in some cases. The fact is, is that China's pandemic management plan about trying to achieve zero COVID just isn't working. It's it's something where uh, they, they can they can come forward and say, look, our, our internal vaccines didn't measure up. They're unwilling to bring in uh, external vaccines, and there's only uh, there, there hardly anybody in China actually has three doses of vaccine at this point. So we can expect that there's going to be continued uh, lockdowns and and isolation periods that are going to affect the major cities in China. That's really unpopular for everybody involved. So the quickest thing to do is just to blame others, to say that, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this because it's the fault of the West, which is uh, malarkey. We've got about 30 seconds to chew on this. It took more than 10 years to pinpoint the cause of SARS, which was about 20 years ago. Given that science has, uh, you know, greatly improved over the years, are we expecting a much shorter time frame to one day ultimately figure out how this started? Yeah, I think so. And I think that as long as the, the, the data 
about the origin of this pandemic is made available from somewhere, somehow. It might not come from Chinese officials. But as long as public health officials are willing to use all source intelligence, looking beyond just strict public health data to find out what happened here, I could say that we, we, we'd have a sense of what's going on in a much shorter time period, for sure, Rick. Dr. Hewish, thank you very much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Best to you. That is Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.